Hello and greetings to everyone who might be listening. My name is Blake Mann and I am doing this podcast in part of the World Ethnography Project that we are doing in Introduction to Cultural Anthropology this semester. So the book I'm covering is Death Without Weeping, The Violence of Everyday Life in Brazil by Nancy Sheeper Hughes. And I chose this book because I really enjoyed reading the author's work in our cultural reader. And so I thought I would pick a whole ethnography of hers to read. And this book is about the um, high infant death rate in Brazil and the reasons behind that. And so throughout this podcast, I'm going to give a background in the author, the research question, an outline of the chapters, and my connection to this book to our class material. So I'm going to get started here with information on the author. Our author, Nancy Sheeper Hughes, earned her PhD in anthropology from UC Berkeley, and she has done a lot of extensive research around the human body, poverty, and violence. And she's developed a type of militant anthropology that calls for action where she sees need instead of looking at people through a purely scientific point. So not only is she trying to research people, she also wants to make a difference in the lives and the systems in place there. And so she's a big reason why I chose this book. She's definitely not a white man with beards type of anthropologist like Dr. Talley has talked about, but the progressive point of view that she researches through and writes in is very interesting to me, and you can see that throughout her book. Now that we've found out a little bit more about her author, I'm going to get into the research question that she explores. And I feel like there's two major research questions the first one being what causes the very high infant mortality rate in northeastern Brazil. And this is looked at in the first couple chapters. And then the second research question is what are the cultural, political, and psychological reasons that exist that allow mothers to cope with infant death so rapidly and multiple times throughout their lives? And this is explored more in the later chapters of the book. So now I'm going to get into the chapter summaries to further analyze this ethnography. So to start to summarize the book here, the author begins in the introduction with a intense description of a delivery she's helping out with. The people there don't think the baby will survive, and it's a very kind of intense situation, a heavy situation, and the author is just kind of taken aback that they're not trying to kind of save the baby, and the baby ends up passing away. So this is kind of just a taste into what the rest of the book is like, and the author goes on to explain in the first few chapters the region they're in, which is Bom Jesus, um, more specifically Alto de Quirzo, and this is described as 600 square miles of suffering. The main industry there is sugar factories. That's where most of the people living in poverty will work, and um, You can still see the effects of colonization. The author makes a point to really emphasize that. Um, These people were enslaved, and they're still seeing that effect still to this day. And so that's kind of the main point of the first two chapters, is just establishing the what and the where and the why before getting on to the more specifics of the society. The following few chapters here go into the class breakdowns. So there's three major classes, the upper class, who are the sugar factory owners, they have lots of wealth, very rich, and then there's the middle class, Um, this is a small class, very few people, they have limited wealth, but they are getting by, and then we have the lower class, and there's a couple levels of the lower class, there's people who can still kind of get by, and then there's people who are begging for a living, 
And so this is the majority class there. And it kind of discusses the two ethics there. The upper level class people don't need any help. They can get by, don't help each other out really. They're very um, independent. But then the lower class people, they all work to help each other survive. So that's kind of an interesting dynamic there. But they just really break down the uneven power dynamic that exists here. Moving on to the next chapters, four and five, it kind of talks more about how much of a role that hunger plays in the lives of the people there. It's not just a feeling of every now and again being hungry. It's a constant, everyday feeling that a lot of the people experience. And one of the situations that was explained in the chapter was two mother killing her children because they were crying too much. And this kind of resulted from hunger. And people have kind of outrageous acts like this as a result of hunger. And a lot of people in the town or in the region know that this kind of condition exists, but there's really nothing they can do about it. They have labeled it nervoso. So whenever someone kind of acts in a strange way, they blame it on that. And it can cause many things like general anxiety, um, people being in a daze, nausea, confusion, bad nightmares, and even a hard time eating or drinking when they do have things to eat. But there's no treatment for this. They go to the doctors and they don't really have anything. They can try to prescribe them something, but it's never really fixed. Because the only reason, the only way it can be fixed is by having more food. And instead of fixing the real root of the problem, the medical professionals there, just kind of put a band-aid over it and try to give them whatever odds and ends medicines to treat it. But the main reason for it is simply they're hungry and they need to eat. So my main takeaways from these chapters was that hunger is an unfortunate staple in their culture, but since it's been so constant there, it has became a part of their culture and it's normalized for these people to be hungry, and the systems in place there, their medical systems, um, systems of law, they perpetuate that hunger that they feel. So to kind of conclude the uh, first half of the book and the first research question, the author looks at the systems in place there. The government is just not set up very well. The rich people who own the sugar factories can pretty much control the government, so they're not seeing a lot of justice. And then the healthcare systems, for one, people don't really have a lot of money to get in-depth care, and so they really just kind of get the least amount possible, just like small prescriptions. And so they can't really turn there. They're not very trusting of their healthcare system because of um, kind of relating back to another ethnography by this author, organ-stealing rumors, and there's different rumors floating around there. So the two systems in place to protect them are essentially doing nothing for them. So to kind of answer that first research question, the reason it's so hot, the infant death rate is so high, is because the conditions there are so bad. They're in a constant state of hunger, so much so that it's become a part of their culture. The systems in place there to protect them are kind of doing the opposite, and they're still suffering those effects of colonization. So... For those reasons, the infant death rate is very high. 
So now I'm going to get into the second half of the book and the second research question. So these last few chapters really get into um, the second research question that the author is looking into, and that is why do mothers seemingly bounce back from seeing their infants die so quickly? So infant death has kind of became like a cultural thing there. So there's a few ways that the culture reinforces mothers after infants die. So for one, they're encouraged not to get um, personal or even name their baby for a few weeks or even up to a couple months after their infants die just so they don't get as attached to them. Um, they're encouraged to shake off their deaths of children. Um, showing emotion is kind of the opposite of what they're reinforced to do. And the first step in normalizing death, it's almost a routine, how it happens so often. And so the author kind of highlights the lack of control in their lives, which is a constant. Um, it's just one more thing that they don't have a control of, kind of like hunger or inequality. Um, they also don't see any governmental agencies um, coming in and trying to help them or making a big deal out of it. So that's another reason why it doesn't seem like it's important. So anyway, it kind of just boils them down to them not trusting the government or the systems in place, which result in not seeking medical attention for their kids or themselves and so until they absolutely have to do so. One of the more interesting parts of the second half of the book is the author's description of the mother's love. She wants to make it very apparent to her readers that though this type of love and coping with your infant death and accepting their death though it's different than what we would do in western society it's not wrong and she really encourages the author to look at it with kind of like an open mind with no etro etro ethnocentric thoughts and so I think this is a really good anecdote that the author puts in there and now I'm going to share with you an excerpt from the book that really ties in this later half of the book in the uh, research question that it's answering. When an infant dies in Alto di Carso, few tears are shed, and women are likely to say that the death came as a blessing or a great relief. I feel free, or I feel unburdened, is what many say. This is not to suggest, however, that women are cold or unfeeling, for very often the mother expresses pity for the dead child, saying, what a shame to see them suffer and die. But pity is distinctly different from the sentiments of grief, sadness, depression, or bittersweet longing or yearning for a lost, dead loved one. So the author looks in the last few chapters into some more individual experiences and gives anecdotes from that, which I wish I had time to cover. But at the end of the book, she points out that people there are trying to make changes to better their lives, but most of the times they're still getting down by the government in the upper class but they are still trying and she highlights religion here in saying that some ministers have came in and tried to help and they just kind of encourage people to make good choices and live a better life but again that's not really the answer but it's a good sentiment just it gives people a little more hope which is good but she really ends the book in a positive note highlighting that the people are trying for change now that I summarized the book, I'm going to give my four main takeaways that I got from the book. 
in relation to what we've been learning in class. So as it's important to summarize, it's also important to relate it back to the content that I've been learning. So the first big main takeaway I had was just realizing those long-lasting effects of colonization. These people were slaves and they've been freed from slavery, but they're still seeing those effects as a result of being enslaved. So that's something that's persisted throughout the semester, looking at those effects. And this is a cross-cultural thing. These aren't the only people who are still suffering from colonization, but the the negative effects they do see are can be linked to colonization. So my second takeaway was that women are disproportionately affected in this high infant death rate in Brazil. They suffer the most more than men as they have to um, are more connected with the child as they're the mother and giving birth as many times it's really hard on your body and on your health and um, mental health too so this is something we see in other cultures as well women experience um, kind of more hardship than men and here the women are kind of made out to be the villains as Western society looks in as they are seen as cold-hearted and stuff but they're definitely not the villains they're the victims and uh, we need to see them that way, but again, women are usually seen in a negative light, so that was the second thing that I took away. Third thing was analyzing my own ethnocentrism. I kind of had that same view in the beginning of the book, is like, I can't imagine how women can't cope with this or don't see... Um, don't seem to be upset, but I just had to not analyze it in the lens of my own culture and look at it through their culture and I really um, was kind of ashamed of myself that I saw it in a um, ethnocentric way but I'm learning to get better as we've been kind of more aware of it throughout the semester. And the last thing just I really enjoyed reading this author and I think her type of anthropology is the type of anthropologist I would want to be um, just kind of trying to change the systems that are in place um, of the places that she's researching. Uh, when reading her text, you could really see how much she cared and how much she wanted things to be different there, so I really enjoyed that. So that wraps up my four main takeaways and concludes my podcast. So I really enjoyed researching and doing this project, and I thank you guys for listening, and I hope you learned something. Um, I'll keep continuing to read ethnographies to become a more well-rounded citizen, and I hope everyone does out there, too. So, thanks for listening, guys.